Welcome to Sacred Justice, a podcast that features discourse rooted in the pursuit of justice as sacred practice. Our weekly discussions reflect on current events, art, media, theology, and how they intersect with the movements for freedom and liberation. We hope that through these conversations, we can foster inclusivity by expanding our learning opportunities. We hope to cultivate digital community beyond the confines of our campus. And we hope to reconnect the church's social and spiritual callings. Join us for the journey. Welcome back to Sacred Justice. We are in our Proud Theology series. This is August for those of you who have been listening and following us for the past two years. We've been on this journey where every August in Charlotte, it's Pride Month. So Charlotte Pride is in August for all of you who are non-Charlotteans or don't live here. It's kind of weird. Mostly people celebrate it in June, but we celebrate Black Pride in July and then Charlotte Pride in August. So Generally, we try to tailor our episodes for the podcast around, you know, topics that really um, lift, uplift voices from the LGBTQIA and beyond communities. And so this year in particular, I was interested in focused, focusing on the T of LGBT, <laughs> which is something they say at Time Out Youth. Uh, they have tea time. Time Out Youth is our uh, center that, that caters to LGBTQIA youth and also non-binary, gender-expansive community. So last week, we had a wonderful guest, Bethany Corgan, and they were phenomenal. Bethany is the executive director of Transcend Charlotte, and we want to keep uplifting Transcend Charlotte and the work that they're doing. Go to their website, uh, donate. They are raising money always, but especially for binders. We are launching a fundraiser here at the church for binders in particular. They get a lot of clothing donations, but it's really hard to have donations for binders and breast forms. If you don't know what that is, go listen to the previous episode because Bethany tells you what it is, okay? So I'm excited about, about today's conversation with my friend from seminary. James, why don't you introduce yourself to the people? <clears throat> Yeah, hi everyone. Um, I'm James, pronouns they, them. Um, I'm the assistant minister at Fort Washington Collegiate Church in Upper Manhattan. Um, and I just graduated from seminary like a few months ago. So. Yes, congratulations. Thank you. Yes, James and I met maybe uh, 2018. Mm. We were in seminary together and I had put out a call for some children's workers to assist with Sunday school and James responded. So that's how I slowly pulled James into the Ford Washington family. <laughs> um, and it's been great to see you evolve over this time period. So thank you for joining us and being a guest today. So oh, thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be here with you and to have this conversation. Yes. Um, one of the things that I've been so fascinated, James, following you on Instagram, you have this wonderful Bible study that I actually recommend to one of my youth to go to. And the way you look at the text and your, your hermeneutical lens is so unique and I'm grateful for it. Um, and we'll get into a little bit of that later, but 
thank you for awakening things in us that we need to we need to know. And we'll talk about reading the cis gaze a little bit later. So <laughs> I want to open some space up for current events. James, usually this segment of our podcast, we bring up some stuff that's going on in the world. So what do you have for us today that's on your mind? Yeah, so I've actually been thinking a lot about um, Governor Cuomo in New York and the 11 women who have come forward um, to say that he had sexually harassed him. And there's also an investigation that, you know, confirmed. And um, to me, it's just like so interesting like he's not resigning like everyone's calling for him to resign like even nancy pelosi and joe biden have like called for governor cuomo to resign and he has not um and so that is something that is just like on my heart and mind right now thinking about and also thinking about like new york as a state so like uh i was in new york city for most of the COVID-19 pandemic and Governor Cuomo was like really out there, like putting himself out there and like making sure that people were informed, but we still have to hold people accountable. So it, yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you'll learn soon that on this podcast, we go there. So don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that's important. Look, look, People are complex, so they can do good things and also they need to be held accountable. And mm -hmm. I'm surprised that Cuomo hasn't resigned yet. Um, and I'm just sort of frustrated with, you know, these people in power. I mean, I've been following the mayoral, mayoral race of New York City and not particularly enthused about who won that either. And no, uh, I just the people in power are are not helping us get where we need to go. And it's stuff like this that's a setback because we have somebody who was really doing what we thought they were supposed to be doing in COVID and now this has been exposed. So, yeah. 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 Um, one of the current events that I've been following is this COVID-19 uh, resurgence, particularly where I'm from, Louisiana. And I have to say... Mm -hmm. Um, so they just started canceling all these festivals. So usually the festival season is like spring in New Orleans and they moved them all to October and now they're all canceling them. So I'm glad and booked my plane ticket home because I was going to go home in October to go to Jazz Fest and now it's all canceled. Everything is canceled, which it should be. Um, but I've just been thinking a lot about how we, you know, we, this country really, the leadership dropped the ball and, I think we are heading into a season of mass hysteria. And um, I was listening to a, a show earlier this morning that talked about how we are collectively as a, as a society, we are experiencing mental health crises as a society, not just individually, but as a society, we are experiencing what that looks like to have a crisis of conscience and morals. And that has really led us here People have been led astray by um, capitalist leaders who have been feeding them misinformation. And now we are here shutting things down again. So that's just been sitting on my heart and also just how it affects the least of these the most. Right. I may not be particularly affected at this particular moment. I am not in poverty. I am not lower class. So 
There are things that don't affect me. I have a job that won't necessarily be affected, though. I mean, we know church work, you know, <laughs> that's precarious. Um, but I've just been thinking about that and how we've really just failed. Many people have failed their neighbors, and that is not that is not of God or Christ-like. So I'm sitting with that as we, you know, move forward. Yeah. Yeah. How was COVID in New York? How was thing? How were things unfolding? You know, I will say, like, right now I'm in Connecticut. I'm visiting family. Yeah. Um, but, like, being in the suburbs versus, like, being in New York City, it's completely different the way that COVID is, I guess, like, approached. And especially, like, in terms of wearing a mask. In New York, people never stopped wearing masks. Even when the CDC was like, okay, like, maybe you don't need to wear a mask. We didn't stop wearing masks okay. because we knew better. Because we went through it. New Yorkers have the trauma of like really going through the COVID-19 pandemic at like its scariest time. Yeah. Um, and so to like be in Connecticut and I also went to Maryland recently with a friend um, where people just like don't wear masks mm -hmm. and just like, don't worry about it as much. And it's when I first experienced that, I was scared, honestly, like we had stopped in New Jersey at a rest area and I like put my mask on and I walk in the store and like hardly anyone is wearing a mask except for the people that work there. And I'm just like, what, like, what is this? This like weird. Uh, and I guess like, I guess they're following like the guidelines. Like if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. And then like the guidelines have changed again, but like in Connecticut, people are still not always wearing a mask. And I, one thing that I didn't realize was how popular this movement to like unmask children are. Yeah. I like being in New York, I really just like, I read about that on the internet and I was like, okay, this must be like a fringe movement, but no, it's like really not. There are a lot of people who don't want children to wear masks. And that's like, that is so scary because like, children under 12 can't be vaccinated. So like, they're really the ones who are like likely to spread it. Yeah. But, it anyway. is a source of tension, even around Charlotte, the arguments that people are getting into regarding masking of children. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I stand back and say, okay, I'm, I'm respecting people's standpoints just from a individual perspective, but this is when state and local agencies, government agencies should be stepping in to just make a decision, make a decision, help us out. I mean, there's been outbreaks at schools here in, in, in um, North Carolina already because they were giving kids the options. If you give kids the options, they're, I mean, they're kids. I mean, you know, even high schoolers, they're kind of like, if you're giving us the option, we're going to do what our friends are doing and, or we're going to do what the cool kids are doing. And so um, there's been a, a crisis of leadership, I think, this whole year and a half, so. Yeah, for sure. Whew. I hope we get out of it soon. But we have good, good stuff to talk about today. James, I want you to, if you if you feel comfortable, share a little bit about your journey before I give the title of this thesis, which is I, I actually typed it out and put it on the screen so people can read it while okay. we're talking about it. But tell us your journey, you know, to seminary um, and then to <clears throat> getting to the point where you're you know, constructing your thesis, you say, I want to write about this. And we'll talk about what that this is later, but give us a little bit of history on yourself. 
yeah, I mean, where to begin? Like the call to seminary is like, that's, that's a 14 year story. honestly. <laughs> yeah. um, but I will say um, just briefly that I had, uh, or well, I have a degree in anthropology. I have a um, bachelor of science in anthropology and I have a master's degree in forensic anthropology from Boston University School of Medicine. And that experience really just like encouraged me to evaluate what's important to me and the type of work that I want to be doing in the world. And it wasn't necessarily um, working in a lab and analyzing bones in an oversaturated field where a lot of people are like super cutthroat and don't really like each other. And so I ended up revisiting the call to ministry that I had as a teenager. Um, and so I applied and I decided to go to Union. Um, as far as like, how did I get to my thesis? Um, I took, uh, I'm forgetting the exact title, but it's basically a class on the revelation of John, the last book in the new Testament, um, with, um, Dr. Amy Mefferton, who is my advisor. Um, my thesis ended up being my thesis advisor later on. Um, and for the final paper in that class, you can kind of do like your own thing like you can do like a biblical exegesis of like whatever you want on revelation and something that i've been really passionate about is doing queer exegesis and applying the model of queer theology to biblical studies um and just sort of like coming up with something and i didn't i also just like didn't want to reinvent the wheel either um <laughs> i tried to do that in my last master's program and it just like did not work um so there's a existing uh, queer theology scholarship on um, who I call the Femme Babylon in Revelation 17 to 19, um, who Chanel T. Smith calls the Woman Babylon, and in like common English translation is the Whore of Babylon, or if we go into Greek, it's the, the Great Porne. Um, and so Lynn Huber who is a lesbian feminist scholar had like previously written um, a queer hermeneutic on, on the femme Babylon. And so I said, okay, well, like this is a good area for me to like expand what we're, what's already been done. I don't have to reinvent the wheel and I can do queer theology in this like really new and exciting way. So yeah, that's about that. I love that. And for you listeners, um, I'm putting this up on the screen for the for those watching. This is the title of James Admon's thesis, The Femme Babylon, Homo Normative Empire and Constructing an Ethic of Transformative Justice. The Femme Babylon, Homo Normative Empire and Constructing an Ethic of Transformative Justice. <laughs> it's really long, but that's <laughs> And there are so many topics in my thesis, and these, I think, were the three main three main things that I wanted to talk about. Yes. I want to read a quote, if you don't mind, from your thesis, just for, to give listeners a little bit of context. And before I do that, I want to say that most of us who are from Myers Park, if you were around in early 2020, Dr. Amy Meverden came here, gave a lecture, and she preached. So she's a friend of our church. Um, and then for those of you who listened to the original Proud Theology series, one of the books that we studied was Rainbow Theology by Dr. Patrick Chang, who is also the reader or, or reader for your thesis, correct? Yeah, he was my second reader. Yes, yes. So this quote I pulled, it says, 
being in the LGBTQIA community does not necessitate rejecting hegemonic forces beyond gender and or sexuality. It continues a little bit later. Searching for safety and power within the context of the United States often means plugging into systems that are already inherently oppressive. James, yeah. can you talk to a little bit about that, that section of your, your thesis and just how it is when, when you're unpacking safe, how safe spaces come to be or how LGBTQIA finds safe spaces. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think basically like, I don't know if I could like rephrase it better than that, but basically like what I'm arguing there is that being being queer or trans doesn't necessarily mean that we don't adhere to like other oppressive norms. And very often when it comes to searching for safety and power, um, as, as a group that is, you know, historically, you know, treated violently and is like not safe in every space and who has been disempowered, um, the solution to that, or like one solution to that, is the problem of adhering to um, empire or to American capitalism or to other oppressive norms. And so for me, I um, compared that to drag race and the way that RuPaul's Drag Race uh, allows for creating safe space, allows this opportunity for queer people to be seen, especially queer men, but not limited to queer men, um, but is still part of perpetuating oppressive norms. So the two that like I specifically talked about in my thesis are transphobia and fatphobia. Mm. And that shows up on the show and it's like, oh, haha, people are fat. We make fat jokes all the time. And yet still, you know, you have this like liberating experience of drag race and yet your like drag race is like not all good. Right. Like it's a, it's a both and. Mm. Oh, that is that is interesting. So there there's still it seems like, you know, because of in, some people might say it's a psychological trauma. Oh, the oppressed can oppress in, in that sense, right? So that, you know, the, the scapegoat here is, okay, fat, fat phobia or, or fat jokes, right? In this setting where this should be a liberative setting or a setting of liberation, and now we're seeing some oppressive um, institutes coming in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> and I think, you know, and connecting that to Revelation, right? If we think of Revelation as like a critique of the Roman Empire, I, I think I said somewhere in my thesis that like drag race represents like um, a sort of like queer empire, but like not necessarily queer because it's adhering to more like um, oppressive norms that are aligned with heterosexuality. So like here's like where the term homonormative comes in. Um, so homonormative, like if you don't know what that means, just like think of Pete Buttigieg, like that is like the most homonormative person that I can think of. Someone who is like um, white, like relatively wealthy, like adhering to the US government or like part of the US government, ran for president, those types of things. So. Yes. Would you say, uh Caitlyn Jenner, does that fit into homonormative or that's something different? You know, I really just like try not to pay attention to her. 
Um, <laughs> yes. But, I, you know, did she support Trump? So, like, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, some, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I was like, when I saw that term, I was like, what is James talking about here? Okay, I get it, I get it. Um, it so, so, okay, so first of all, I, I was telling James before we recorded that my final paper in seminary was also Dr. Amy Meverden's class, and um, I didn't write a 50-page thesis, but mine was like about 20. And um, I did focused on the sun woman from Revelation 12. So I was also very much into the women of Revelation and trying to choose, there's four, right? There's four main sort of archetypal women characters in Revelation. So tell me a little bit about how you landed on the Femme Babylon, um, particularly when you talk about queer theology, queering the text. Um, how did you land there and decide to play a little bit more? Yeah, so I think in Revelation, women are, like, as you said, like, they're used as, like, archetypes. Like, there's the sun woman, and then there's also, like, the bride of Christ. Um, and then there's, like, the Jezebel, and then there's um, the femme Babylon. Yeah. And so I think with femme Babylon, and um, there's there's a lot of nuance there that's, like, not immediately apparent unless you do like some pretty intense biblical exegesis. And so like, I heavily rely on like the scho the scholarship of the womanist theologian, Chanel T. Smith, who has like really delved into the nuance of this figure as like someone who is like both this like enthroned empress and also like an enslaved brothel sex worker. Mm. So, so there's this like, um, duality going on of like someone who is oppressed and an oppressor. Mm. Um, and so like with that, like we can, we can use Patrick Chang's uh, definition of queer, like what it means to queer something. Um, and one of those things is uh, a disruption of categories and how we think of things as separate um, and that they're not necessarily separate. Um, and, you know, like there's, there, there are the typical examples of that. Like we think of night and day as different, um, but then there's like sunset and da, 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 da. Like I'm really trying to get away from that model. Like, <laughs> like as a non-binary person, I'm kind of tired of being compared to a sunset. <laughs> uh, that is so funny. Okay. Yes. But I think it's a good way to explain it, right? Like we can go into Genesis one and like deconstruct all these false binaries and be like, okay, night and day, fish of the sea, birds of the air, blah, blah, blah. Like what about platypus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like very trans theology one-on-one. Okay. I get it. Um, and so what I wanted to do with the Femme Pavlon was talk a little bit more about experience and like the experience of being um, a trans person, especially um, it, from like my own perspective, but in a way that could apply to like other trans people. Um, and I, you know, I, I do want to be careful about that. Like as a white trans person, like my experiences are not the same as like trans people of color. So, so yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time talking about the cis gaze. Yes. Yeah. Read the cis gaze. When you say, 
Now, when you say reading the cyst gaze, are you saying like reading, like I'm going to get it together, like, um, like they would do in like Paris is burning or, you know, yes. is that what you're referring to? Yes. It's supposed to be like a pun. I try to keep the subtitles interesting. You know, no one wants to read boring theses. So yes. I, I was like, this is, I, I want to hear more about this. I was like, read us. We need to be read. Tell these cis people that their their hermeneutic and their lens is not the dominant gaze. It's not the you know the only gaze. So tell me tell me more about that. Yeah. So I also just like wanted to clarify that I'm talking about the gaze, like the G A Z E, not like gay men. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did, I did a presentation on this before. People were like, "What are you talking about?" And they're like, "Oh, that gaze." Yes. Yes. <laughs> the yes. other gaze. <laughs> Um, so building off the idea of um, the male gaze and like the way that men look at women and then like the way that women um, therefore internalize that, right? Um, and so I wanted to build off of that um, using the cis gaze and like the way that cis people look at trans people. Um, and I found that I found a number of similarities in the way that John, who is the author of Revelation, looks at the Femme Babylon. He gazes at this Femme Babylon. And also he invites us to participate in this gaze. So like we are also participating participants in like looking at this like fantastic human being. Um, fantastic as like um, like amazing, but also like not that great either. Um, and so uh, where am I going with this? Sorry. <laughs> the, the reading, the reading oh. of the cis gaze. Yeah, the reading of the cis gaze, like the way that John looks at the femme Babylon, he basically like sexualizes her, right? Like he, he experiences this like sexual attraction to the femme Babylon that quickly turns to disgust. And that I think is well, I have argued in my thesis, is similar to um, how cis people look at trans people as like suddenly attractive at first glance. And then when we get to, we get to like know them a little bit better, oh, we actually find out that they're trans and that they're disgusting. Mm -hmm. And so John is going through something similar when he's like, oh, I'm, I'm like very attracted to this human. And then this angel is like, John, there is more to this woman than you know. And so then it goes into this whole thing about like, oh, like what she looks like. Like she's this amazing woman who's sitting on a, a scarlet beast and like wearing gold and purple and has this like golden cup of abominations. Like she's very beautiful, right? And then it goes into the destruction because she's not just a woman. Like she also represents Rome. Yeah. Um, and also, like, not just Rome, like, also represents, like, the influence of Rome. I think with Revelation, a lot of people are like, this means this, and, like, da-da-da-da-da, but, like, really, uh, one thing means, like, a lot of things, yeah. right? Like, the dragon and was it Revelation? 12. 13, 12? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The drag like, some people have said it represents the emperor, some people have said it represents Zeus, some people have said it represents just, like, this overall, like, power of empire, and so, like, the woman Babylon is, like, is similar, right? But, like, basically Rome, yeah. <laughs> if you have to summarize it, it's Rome. Um, and so the way that, that she is destroyed is, like, very violent, um, and 
there's still this mystery to her after death. Um, and this question of like, what was her agency in that? Like as someone who is enthroned and also enslaved, right? Mm. How do those two things go together? And so then I'm sort of like faced with this question of like, okay, can we really be happy about this? Like, can we really be happy that, um, that the woman Babylon is destroyed and disempowered? as someone who has both oppressor and oppressed identity. Mm, Wow. That's powerful. When you just said that she is both enthroned and enslaved, I thought about, I just finished season three of Pose. So I was thinking about like ballroom culture lately. Um, I'm a huge fan of Pose. And I thought about how in in ballroom culture, um, which is a culture mostly I would say, you know, people of color, um, you get this moment to be enthroned, right? You're walking down, you're, you're dressed up, you're doing whatever you're doing, whether you're, whatever category you're competing in, right? You are enthroned for a moment. And then when you leave that room, you are marginalized. It's very clear. Um, and so the way you described that just now, just it jogged my memory. I'm curious when you're talking about the way people look at trans people. You have a quote in your in your thesis that says, "Femmes and drag queens were considered to be at the bottom most uh, is it reigns of of the Stonewall in social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes not even allowed in the bar." Yeah. And I was also thinking about this uh, <laughs> the scene from season one of Pose where Blanca tries to go to the bar, a gay bar, with cisgender gay men. Um, I'm sorry, not cisgender gay men, but uh, yeah, yeah, cisgender gay men. And she's kicked out several times and even arrested. And so I'm curious your thoughts about, like, to go deeper into that, the, the oppression of trans and non-binary people, people who are gender expansive, gender fluid, um, how how deeply is that entrenched in the work that you do in your thesis and beyond? Um, I think I think it has like an overall like slash like overarching theme to it. Um, the way that people who are more feminine in the LGBTQI plus community are often like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like not treated well. And like the way that especially cis gay men um, are misogynistic. And so that spills out into, I think it also spills out into like feminine gay men or like for me as a non uh, a femme non-binary person like that spills out too mm-hmm. um sorry i'm not sure where, where i was going with that can you sorry that was that was that's, that's that's good yeah okay. I, I i just i'm so curious about how how much that informs your work and when i see your bible studies particularly um the one with Joseph undoing the, well, the, the, the dream code was really addressed and I'm seeing how you're using this hermeneutic. I wanted to know how much of that was a part of the formation. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, I think gender is something that's really like untapped as far as like queer exegesis. Like a lot of people like to talk about David and Jonathan, 
And that really is just like, that reflects like this um, preference for talking about gay men. Yeah. So, especially when like with Joseph, there's, there's like significant evidence for like in the Hebrew for this to like be uh, a dress or like some sort of like feminine princess robe, right? Not like a coat of many colors. So yeah. And I mean, both are important, right? Like that's great, but let's start talking about Joseph more. Let's start talking about like Deborah more. Let's start talking about Yael more in terms of gender. Deborah. Um, Deb Deborah, yeah. Wait, Deborah. tell me about Deborah. Wait a minute. Deborah, Deborah and Judges four, right? Judges four and five. Um, and so, like, not to say that like Deborah is like a lesbian or anything, but to, I mean, I have my suspicions, but <laughs> Deborah as like this person who sort of who is in like a a, a, a what would culturally be like a man's role as a judge and as a military leader. So that in and of itself, I think is queer. And so we can say Deborah is queer period. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. There's not, there's not that much there that like I've, um, that I've uncovered, but um, there's probably a little bit more with Yael. Yeah. Yael who like tricks this, who was it? Cicera like into her tent like gave him milk then he like fell asleep and then she killed him with a tent bag. Like yeah. that is so sexy and just like <laughs> the gender there is just like so interesting. Like, Oh my gosh. Sorry. No, I, I love it. I, this is the Bible story. study I need. I want to come. I want, I want to offer this to my people because I think that people are generally bored with the readings of, the ones who actually read the Bible are bored with the, the the lenses that they've been reading the Bible through. So this stuff just opens our imaginations to the mm -hmm. possibilities. James, what do you see? You know, the future of of this work, your work, uh, its its place in the church. Do you feel like the church, capital C, is really ready for this? Even the ones who say that they are open and affirming and all things. Do you think they're really ready for your hermeneutical lens, your Bible studies? Um, what do you, where do you think the future is going? No, like, <laughs> you know, I feel really blessed to be at Fort Washington where I can do this kind of work and in a congregation where people are open-minded enough to, to think in this way. Um, and there, there also, like, is the problem of, like, oh, well, you, like, can't really say that, like, David and Jonathan were gay men or, like, bisexual men or, like, whatever, because, like, those those labels didn't exist then, which, like, is true, whatever. However, you can still say that there was something going on, something queer going on there. Um, as far as, like, open and affirming churches, I think it really depends. Um... I haven't seen that many churches talk about Joseph and the princess dress. You know, I've seen two and one was middle collegiate church and one was me at Fort Washington collegiate church. So like, do I think that like church is ready? I, well, I think a lot of open and affirming churches are just like not ready to be open and affirming. Yeah. Um, or like if they are like, they don't live it out. Um, you know, I think 
especially churches in the UCC, think of open and affirming as like, oh, well, we'll welcome just like the gay men and the lesbians, especially yeah. the ones. And don't, they like don't really tackle trans issues. Um, and they don't necessarily like know what to do when a trans person walks in the building or how to make the space hospitable to them. Um, and so like the idea that like this sort of theology would influence a church, I think it would have to be in worship. So I think Bible study is great, but I also think that if we're really going to queer the church and if we're really gonna like bring in the voices of queer and trans people, especially queer and trans people of color, that needs to go to the heart and soul of the community, which I think is wor- is worship. That might not be true for all churches, but I think for a lot of churches, it is worship. And that's where it needs to happen. So, yeah. Speaking of worship, <laughs> tell us about your chapels, okay? Like, where can we... Do, do you have them on YouTube? Is there, like, a clip? I just... I thoroughly enjoyed watching, particularly in the pandemic, because it was virtual. I just really mm-hmm. enjoyed the creativity. Tell us about the formation of those chapels and, and give give the people some background. I mean, I kind of know what it is, but I want yeah. you to explain it. Yeah. So, like last semester in seminary, I said, "Let's do drag chapel," and like, let's not just do one; let's do two, and two turned into three. <laughs> so. Um, You know, I had read about Drag Chapel in um, Molly Finney Basquette's book, Real Good Church, um, where she talks about how someone in their church was a a drag queen. And so, like, the drag queen would, like, read the liturgy and, like, do the prayers or whatever, and that would be, like, their drag gospel celebration. And I was like, that's good. That's really great. You know, da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, but that drag queen is not centered. Right. If someone is just doing the scripture reading, no, 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 no. Like, if you're really wanting to query your worship service, you need to have the drag queen preaching. And so we did it. And um, so my drag persona, her name is Marge Johnson, also known as Marge Aaron Johnson, also known as Marge Aaron Spread, and Miss Spread if you're nasty. So. <laughs> And so, like, okay. (laughs) Um, But I also like, uh, so my friend Mary, um, I brought the idea to her because I was like, oh, I want to do a lip sync, but like, I don't want it to be just me. Um, And so I was like, Mary, like, would you do a lip sync to Totally Clips of the Heart with me? And you can do the man's part. She was like, yeah. And so Mary is, is now Chad Manley, right? The drag king. Um, and there's something, there's something really magical about drag chapel and the way that like, you just sort of like let loose a little bit more, right? Like all of, all of these like rules about like what church is supposed to be and how you're supposed to behave in church. Suddenly that all goes out the window. And I think especially with, um, Marge, there's something really magical about like her persona too, because she's not your typical drag queen, like in a bar or in a club, she's in church. And so like that in, in itself is like really interesting. Um, but 
I think in order to like describe like what is really going on, like we have to go into like, what is a drag queen? And so Judith Butler talks about drag as like um, a parody of gender that points to the shaky foundations that gender is constructed upon. (laughs) And so like inherently like a drag artist in a worship space is going to be there to shake things up in more ways than one. I love it. You know, I like shaking stuff up. Now shake it up. We can't want to turn it on its head. Okay. <laughs> wow. Um, I love that. Is I, I just asked you this, but is there a place or do you plan on releasing it? You want to tell the people or any clips you want to share with them uh, to tell, point them to? <laughs> yeah, you can go to my website, theologyqueen.com. Um, they will be up. You can also go to my Instagram. I'm at theology.queen and you can see some of the lip syncs on there. Ooh, yes, yes, yes. James, when you think about, as we begin to wrap up, when you think about theology, um, and I know, I know you kind of mentioned earlier trans 101, tra- trans theology 101, and then you also talked about the sunset, which I've heard several times as well. Is there something that you can, a snippet that you can say this, if, if, a, if a trans or a non-binary person came to you and they're wanting some sort of pastoral care or just something to hold, a nugget to hold on to, a nugget of hope. Is there something you can share with them, share with the community, people who are wanting to just hear something about how God is with and for trans, non-binary, gender expansive communities? Yeah, I mean, exactly what you just said. That's what I would say. Like God is like with you and for you and supports you and loves you and is with you always. God does not abandon you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, finally, mm-hmm. are there any resources, things you've read? You mentioned Chanel T. Smith. You mentioned Patrick Chang, Judith Butler. Anything else that might be easily accessible for some of our listeners to go and check out as they be, they deepen their education? And like you said before, a lot of the open and affirming churches um, are really gay and lesbian affirming churches, and they've sort of... Uh, they, they checked that off their list 20 years ago and then never went back to deepen their knowledge of the mm-hmm. rest of the, the letters, the bisexuality and transgender communities and non-binary. So any resources you can offer us and our listeners? Yeah, I would check out Austin Harkey's book. Um, I want to say it's called Transforming. Um, but it's basically a, a bit, uh, Austin Harkey is a, a Hebrew Bible scholar and has done a lot of uh, trans exegesis specifically. Um, and also Justin Tannis's book called Transgender. Um, that is a great book too. If you're like not really thinking that you want to do something like Bible related, you just want to do like theology in general. That's another great book. I also just want to say like both of those people are white trans masculine people. And so I would also say that like the field of trans theology is still growing and it says a lot about like who it says a lot about like the work that we still have to do. Right. Because we're, we're uh, (laughs) referencing these great resources, but ones that are, you know, some of the most privileged in the trans community. Thank you for sharing that. James, thanks so much for sharing time with me on Sacred Justice for our series. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I look forward to watching all the other wonderful things you come up with along the way. Um, and also wishing you well as you discern what's next in your path for ministry. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great. Great to be here with you and to have this great conversation. Yes. You all know where to find me. If you have questions, send me an email at mmcclain at myersparkbaptist.org. And I will follow up with you. Until next time, take care. Friends, that was our episode this week. As always, please email your questions and your suggestions to Reverend Mia McLean at mmcclain at myersparkbaptist.org. Until next time, take care. This is Sacred Justice.